0: lean blog audio i hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought something else to help you in your lean journey welcome to the lean blog podcast visit our website at www.leanblog.org now here's your host
1: mark graben
0: hi this is mark graben welcome to episode 324 of the podcast it's november 13th 2018. joining us today is Art Smalley. Now, Art was one of the first Americans, one of the very first, to work for Toyota Motor Corporation in Japan. And after working for them, has been helping other organizations with uh, problem-solving, leadership, everything that's incorporated in the Toyota production system, AKA Lean, uh, methods and approaches. Art is, uh, like me, a faculty member at the Lean Enterprise Institute. He has written two Shingo Publication Award-winning books. The first was Creating Level Pull, and the second book, co-authored with Professor Durward Sobek, is Understanding A3 Thinking. Art later wrote a book titled Toyota's Kaizen Methods, Six Steps to Improvement with Isao Kato, and I have all these books, and I've only met Art briefly, um, just sort of in passing in the past, so I'm really happy to have him here as a guest. You know, today we'll talk about art's career and reflections. We'll talk a lot about problem solving in his most recent book, Four Types of Problems, which was published by the Lean Enterprise Institute. And as far as disclosures go, um, LEI provided me a free electronic copy of the book. So if you'd like to learn more about art, you can go to his uh, website, appropriately cleverly named artoflean.com. And if you want links to all of the books and uh, more information, you can go to leanblog.org slash three, two, four. Well, again, we are joined today by Art Smalley. Art, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the invitation. Well, I'm really, really glad we have uh, the chance to talk today. I've I've known of you and of of your work um, for a long time. I've I've got copies of... uh, your A3 book and your Toyota Kaizen Methods book and um, was really happy to have the opportunity to read Four Types of Problems and but, uh, your, your most recent book. But before we get into that, I was wondering if, if you wouldn't mind, you know, introducing yourself and, you know, talking about how it was that you got to have the chance to work at Toyota.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, and likewise, I've been a follow of yours for a long time. So I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your, uh, your audience today. So I'm I'm like accidental lean guy. Um, by no way did I set out to uh, do this. If you'd have interviewed me in high school or college, I wouldn't have picked this career choice or any any way, shape, or form. I just was wasn't planning on doing this. I was in Japan after college on a graduate studies scholarship. I did study Japanese language and did pretty well with it, and won a scholarship to go study further as a, an ambassador. You know, a Rotary scholar ambassador in Japan. And at the tail end of that, I was actually planning on coming back home to the United States. And it was at a a famous language institute in Japan, in Tokyo. And John Shook happened to come recruiting on campus for Toyota. Ah. (laughs) And he was actually looking for his own replacement. You know, one of the things he jokes in Toyota is you always try and kaizen yourself out of a job. And he had a central position of doing plant support, you know, NUMI and various overseas support but Toyota realized they needed, um, instead of just a person at the, the head office level, they wanted people in the engine plant, in the vehicle plant, in, in the vehicle local areas, and I wound up getting uh, selected and hired to go to uh, Toyota's Kamigo engine plant, which at that time was the mother engine plant for uh, you know future overseas uh, engine plants.
0: And, and this was in the late 80s?
1: Yeah, latter part of the 80s. I graduated uh, college in 87 and went straight to Japan and then you know, a year after that, I was working for Toyota.
0: Yeah, and so how long were you with Toyota in Japan, and then did you end up with Toyota here in the U.S. as they expanded?
1: Yeah, I, I had a couple of phases to my career with Toyota. It's, it's again, a funny story. Uh, so, 88 to, to 94, 95, actually, I think I was with Toyota as an employee. I forget the exact dates, and Kamigo engine plant, and then I went and spent a year with a uh, contracting company in Toyota, a special engineering resources company that my boss had gone to, and he was launching a startup division. And I, I more or less knew I wanted to return to the United States at that point in time. So he says, hey, look, you know, if, as an interim step, why don't you come work with me in this startup, which was pretty rare and unique in Japan at the time, uh, engineering services company, and uh, see if you can make something out of it that you'd like to pursue in the United States. And I, you know, semi-followed that path for a year or two and actually did go to Kentucky and was uh, working then as a contractor to Toyota. I have the badge and I got everything saved. It's funny. So I was not only an employee of Toyota, I actually came to the U.S. and I was a contractor to Toyota for uh, a period of time in uh, Kentucky. And then I was like half in, half out sort of thing and uh, wound up starting my own company, which went in the consulting direction outside of Toyota.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what what sort of differences do you remember? Um, you know, as as Toyota was ramping up in in Kentucky. I mean, for one, it was a newer environment. You know, it's in obviously it's a, it's in America instead of Japan. Um, do, do you have any like you know kind of strong memories of of differences or challenges that way?
1: Yeah, it was a huge challenge. Um, you know, Toyota did have its NUMI experience, and they had a small plant in Australia and a couple other we call them CKD or kind of knockdown uh, places where you just assembled to get around uh, import export regulations. But Georgetown was the first, you know, billion dollar bet, you know, uh, really, really significant capital investment higher, you know, I think ultimately 7,000 Americans in e- engine and powertrain and uh, vehicle side. So it was a big stepping stone, a big challenge for the company. And the Toyota I worked for, I I was I was based out of Japan. I was a Toyota of Japan uh, employee. And it was still, you know, almost an entirely Japanese company back then. There were, you know, people who worked in sales, of course, around the the world. And you had these support offices around the world. But production was still an all-Japanese affair back then. And, uh, you know, I look at Toyota today the the toyota i worked for was big you know 70,000 people okay that was that was big back then but the toyota today is still 70,000 japanese but it's an, an additional 280,000 <laughs> wow. non-japanese around the world it's truly a remarkable global company with a footprint you know europe north america south america asia just just everywhere africa and it's just amazing the way the company has expanded and became such a, uh, a global entity
0: yeah And then you were doing consulting work and and working with American companies. Um, I I know from your profile, uh, you were at Donnelly. Was that, again, as an employee or were you doing consulting for them for a long time?
1: So I was initially, you know, post-Toyota did consulting and uh, a a gentleman who actually uh, worked at GM. He was a 20-year veteran of GM who went to Toyota and was our vice president of powertrain. Uh, he left for personal reasons, just growth, kind of wanted to go back to Michigan. His family was Michigan, and he took a position as vice president of manufacturing in a company called Donnelly in, in the west side of Michigan, and after a year in there, he realized he was going to need help. He wanted somebody to help him go across what was then eight facilities in North America and kind of explain what lean was and create an internal system, so he hired me to be his director of, uh, you know, lean operations internally, and uh, I had a great relationship with him from Toyota days and just really admired him and look forward to the chance to work with him. So for about a five year stint there, four or five year stint there, I was director of internal, was the internal lean leader for Donnelly corporation.
0: And, uh, and, you know, thinking about, you know, going back and forth between being a consultant or, you know, an employee on the inside. I mean, what, what are there some key differences in, in the approach of, you know, trying to introduce or bring people along with TPS and Lane?
1: Well, yeah, there's always differences and a lot of it comes down to relationships that you build with people, you know, even as an internal consultant at Donnelly, I was still initially the outsider. Most people at Donnelly had spent their career there, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So me joining with Russ, we were initially viewed kind of skeptically, cautiously. And I had to, you know, build build my relationships with my constituents, so to speak, the plant manufacturers, the engineers, the supervisors, the manufacturing managers, facility by facility, understand problems from their point of view, what where they were struggling with, what they had done in the name of Lean in the past and had worked, what they were trying, what wasn't working, and then areas where they weren't yet doing anything. And you know, it takes a while across it was eight facilities back then to to figure that out site by site and build a relationship with them. And whether you're an external, internal consultant, you know, everybody, you, you face that, that kind of hurdle, the battle of, of forging that relationship, gaining trust, understanding the problem from their point of view, conveying in language what they can understand, your, your intent, your, your goals, how you want to go forward uh, with them. And, you know, forming that bond and decision-making uh, ability and, and uh, spirit of trying and going forward, that you know, takes time.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that seems like good advice. Um, even, you know, for, for an a- outside consultant, And it might be you know, more difficult to build those relationships or, or gain trust. Um, you know, but I, I think back to, um, you know, the second of the two plant managers I reported to at, at General Motors, this was in powertrain uh, and in an engine plant as well. So that's one thing we have in common was um, time in engine plants. But that second plant manager was one of the original gm people who got sent to new me he was what mm. the wall street journal called one of the um the Numi commandos and I've, I've mentioned him when i've talked to other new me people but you know he came into our plant which was really like very much in crisis mode and i was young right out of college you know kind of by nature maybe impatient and uh, you know i asked him once he was out on the shop floor of course and I asked him you know, larry uh you know, you've been here for a while and boy, we really need, you know, when, when, kind of asking like, when are the changes coming or what, you know? And, and he said, it was one of those sort of like, Oh, be patient grasshopper moments. Like he didn't mm-hmm. say that literally, but you know, he said, you know, and he was emphasizing that he was spending a lot of time building relationships and trust and listening, you know, he was listening as much as he, he wasn't just out there talking at people. And, you know, I think he was reminding me that, you know, he had to make that investment, before jumping into action, which um, uh, that, that was a really good lesson, at least to to hear from somebody and then trying to practice that on my own and not being as impatient. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, are, are there some things in particular back to the idea of, of building trust? Um, Where well, I think in a lot of organizations um, I see today, including, unfortunately, in healthcare, there's a lack of trust between medical professionals and leaders and Maybe you know, there's probably not an easy answer here, but what, what are some of the key ways of trying to build trust?
1: Well, I, I think it's probably is more complicated in uh, healthcare, just the way the, the industry is, is organized and the way we do the, you know, the payer provider relationships. But again, regardless, you know, kind of as the, the internal person, I always, you know, start with the word empathy uh, and I try and understand their point of view. Because, you know, maybe they don't understand what I'm trying to explain or maybe they do understand it and have had a bad experience with it or can't see the forest for the trees sometimes. And you got to spend some time, you know, dialoguing back and forth, getting a common understanding of the lay of the landscape, the situation and and making see I see it from their point of view. They can see learn to see it from my point of view. And it's, it's not this, uh, well, I'm not going to steamroll you approach, but at the same time, I'm not really backing down either. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to come to some mutual understanding after, you know, hopefully not too much time and understand what your, the priority is. And usually I suggest a couple different ways of going forward and they, there's pros and cons with each one generally. And come to some shared sense of their style of leadership, my style of leadership, what the situation is calling for and you know mapping out you know the uh the, the plan of action how to move forward and i think that's that's critical that's that's not science a lot of people like to say oh this is just science or scientific thinking but dealing with people is not science
0: <laughs> yeah there's a lot you of know? psychology which is a different, different yeah, yeah.
1: Science, it, it's psychology and human relations and yeah. y- everybody responds a little differently and you gotta you gotta figure that out case by case
0: yeah well that was one thing you know it's just I, a lot of times think back to Dr. Deming's work and, you know, when Dr. Deming talks about psychology and I remember he, you know, he would write a manager's job is to understand each employee as an individual. Yeah. You know, that, that there's d- different people, there's different things that make people tick in different ways. And... Yeah.
1: The old TWI materials going back to the wars yeah. said that too, the JR yeah. philosophy, mm-hmm. one of the four foundational underpinnings of TWI job relations was you must treat people as individuals you can have a policy Mm -hmm. i can't have a policy for every person but i i still got to be able to relate to and understand everyone as an individual
0: yeah you're right so that goes back even while that goes back i'm sure even even um, who
1: who knows where that started yeah
0: ancient ancient ideas here but um you know before talking about the book i mean there's one other thing that comes to mind um i I hear you talking about the need for balance Um, you're sort of talking about like you know when. When, when to push? When to solicit input? Um, I, that's that's a theme. You know, I think to other former Toyota people I've talked to, I hear people say things like, um, you know, yes, bottom-up ideas from employees are important, but occasionally leaders need to make a suggestion. But then you better balance that out with more bottom-up ideas. That was, uh, um, it was a a recent conversation with a former Toyota Australia leader who was involved in, you know, in their um, unfortunate kind of ramping down of uh, production in, in Australia. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> so I myself there, but back, back to the question I was going to ask, I mean, what, what are some of your thoughts around finding balance around, um, you know, kind of uh, asking questions versus making suggestions as a leader or other dimensions of that?
1: So an easy way to frame it, you know, I've tried framing it in Toyota stories and Japanese language before, and sometimes the unintended consequence of Japanese words is it makes it murky and harder to confuse. So one of the frameworks I've just tried more recently with executives in America, and it seems to work fine, if not better, is just use the language of situational leadership. And there's this old Hersey-Blanchard model, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, a really seminal work about. You know, leadership is often situational and that it depends upon the skill and will of the learner each situation you have you know uh, low levels of skill but they're very willing to try something uh, you can be more directive if they're open to your advice but if you try that with experts you, you get the opposite they're going to push back on you tooth and nail and I've had, you know, I've had the entire universe of experience of dealing with, you know, like some of our nation's top scientists, you know, national laboratories who are the expert in their field. And I was not going to tell them anything, and I was smart enough not to, not to try to be directive or uh, confrontational in those situations. But that's a case of high skill and high will, where, look, you can ask directions, you can learn, you can uh, co-think with them, you can delegate, but there's... Um, You know, the old four quadrants of situational leadership one being directive two coaching my way, but you know, with your input, three supportive their, their way, but my input and four, you know, delegating where you can leave it to them and just critique, adjust and and be their uh, sounding board from time to time. And lean, I, I think that really relates well, situation by situation, even within a given company, you can run into all four of those quadrants.
0: Mm hmm. Well, and so maybe let, let, thank you. Thank you for that. I'm curious to dive into, uh, instead of four quadrants, four types of problems and, hmm. uh, your, your, your new book, um, yeah, before we, you know, I'm going to ask you, you know, kind of give an overview of those types of problems and how they're helpful. But I was curious, you know, I always like to ask an author, you know, what, what led to actually sitting down and writing and, and completing the book? I'm always interested in the motivations or the spark and the reason why.
1: Yeah, so let, let's start there before the four types, because I think it's a good good lead-in that, you know, as lean practitioners, we all reflect. We all do the Hansei thing from time to time, and what are we seeing in our clients? What are we reading in materials? What are we seeing in the field? Where are people struggling? And, you know, there's a, a dozen reasons we could easily come up with why we're struggling, for example, and why things are going well. But I was having this conversation with John Shook, uh, and uh, you know, we, we got on the topic of uh, A3 reports, and he'd written the LEI book, Managing to Learn. And I'd
0: mm-hmm.
1: Derward Sobek, Professor Sobek. I'd written A3 Thinking, and they're they're complementary. We knew we were writing them at the same time, but we knew we were coming at it from different angles. So they were,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we were, uh, you know, not not competitors, any sense of the word. We were collaborators on the topic, even though we wrote our own books. And you know, years after they were done. We would often be frustrated with what we saw, you know, poor execution of the thinking of problems or misapplication of the tool or technique. And it just runs the gamut from people demanding that every problem be an A3 report Mm -hmm. or that, you know, the A3 report had to follow this template and fit within this box. And, you know, there's really rigidly specifying how to use them. to people who struggled with it to to use it in any instance. So, you know, we were both lamenting the situation saying in the spirit of, gee, if we had it to do all over again, what would we do differently? Mm -hmm. And that conversation, you know, led to the the framework I proposed in the next book called four types of problems.
0: Yeah. And I've, I've certainly heard, you know, visited organizations where I've heard that same demand, you know, everything has to be an A3 and I've tried to push back on that. And uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but I think one example of, you know, kind of diving in deeper to that is um, not everything necessarily requires root cause problem solving. I think there's some elements, some things that might be called Kaizen where it's still PDSA thinking, but it's more a matter of see a problem, test a solution, see what the effect is. And sometimes I, people, to them that sounds, um, sacrilege isn't the right word because I, I don't think this is a religious matter, but um, if you accept that parallel and they say, what do you mean? Oh, we should always be asking why, what do you mean no root yeah. cause? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the A3 process is maybe too slow or too involved if it's a relatively simple problem. Were you I'm curious your thoughts.
1: Yeah, so again, I'm a, a shades of gray person, and, and the, the people that worked in Toyota, you know, they aren't that rigid. Um, it, people with practical experience on this topic and worked long enough in Toyota realize, well, there's this case and that case, and you can macro say, yeah, it's it's all a thinking system. We joke TPS stands stands for sometimes the Thinking Production System, and we we coach a problem st- solving style of thinking. But in reality, if you look at history, I can go from Toyota history, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s and onward, and talk about the different flavors that dominated at different points in times. Or I can just take today, any facility around the world, Toyota or non-Toyota for that matter, and point out that it's not, not everything's an A3 report, not everything's a Kaizen event, not everything's a Kata session, not everything's you know uh, gonna be handled by the and-on system and quick thinking. There's a variety of things going on in Toyota from innovation, you know, Lexus and Prius style innovation, down to problem solving the situation in and solving it within this hour, and those thinking patterns um, are, are slightly different. I use the golf club analogy. I, I can do tremendously well, or once upon a time when I was an avid mm-hmm. golfer playing with just my seven iron, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'm better when you when I use 14 clubs. <laughs> yeah. And I can actually bend those clubs left to right, right to left, low, high, you know, depending upon the wind and the pin position. (laughs) There's slightly different shades of gray here. And I didn't want to overwhelm people. Neither John and I thought the right answer was to have 64 types of problems. (laughs) But what if we just like, let's, let's broaden this for people. If you're doing fine, by the way, don't, don't, you know, ignore me. But if you're struggling a little bit on this topic, then, you know, think about the four types and realize there are uh there is a a you know a framework here that we think can help and is very toyota like in many senses
0: yeah, and you know as we, we talk about the four types um, of of problem you know kind of, uh you know f- the first type uh troubleshooting you know when i was at I had a chance last week I was in Japan, saw one of the Toyota plants, and we mm-hmm. had a chance to stand in the catwalk and you know, as an engineer, I love when the tour stops and we can actually observe. Mm-hmm. Uh, cycles of work. And, you know, there was a sub area where there were some and on cord poles, not surprising. And somebody else in the tour noticed, well, uh, that team member has dropped bolts a couple of times. And so as expected, a team leader was there pretty immediately. Uh, the team leader jumped in and was doing some of the work as the other worker uh, caught up. Um, it certainly didn't look like they were stopping to do an A3. Yeah, so I was wondering yeah. if you could talk about a scenario like that. Um, yeah, some of the some of the good practices around troubleshooting and and how that works.
1: Yeah, so again, this may be the most distinctive feature of of Toyota and people, unless you've toured it and really stopped and watched as you have or work within it, I think it's easily overlooked. But the whole, you know, the Andon system and the the minute by minute cadence. Again, their 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 speed is minute by minute for for production, and you got to check hourly. And in that period of time, you're going to have small problems, uh, dropping bolts. Uh, I worked on the engine assembly line. I cross thread some things. I stripped some stuff. I dropped an alternator. I missed, I missed a gasket. You know, you're going to have lots of small problems. And in the, the Toyota system, you've got yourself to, to fix the problem with you push the button, fix it yourself within a specified period of time. And if it goes a few seconds beyond that, then the team leader, you know, mm-hmm. comes over and bails you out. And, uh, that's part of the system of just how it how it works. That you are expected to have many small problems during the day, and just for math purposes, keeping uh, you know, a seven thousand person vehicle plant with with two shifts and a volume of say two hundred and forty thousand vehicles, they're going to have about ten thousand Andon cord pulls or instances a day. So if you if you think about it, you know. I'm not going to do 10,000 A3 reports. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do 10,000 sit-down Kata sessions or Six Sigma projects where I really collect the data. You have to have some spirit of what I call win, win the minute so we win the hour, win the hour so we win the shift. Win the shift, win the day, you know, and it adds up to a good month and a good quarter. But you better win those minutes. And in, sometimes at the margin of those minutes, you do have many small problems which the team needs to deal with. Uh, quickly and effectively and it's nothing to put down people say oh that's band-aiding well not necessarily no i I broke a tool snapped and you know we're going to replace the tool in a cycle and you know if it repeats a second time or third time i got a deeper problem but a one-time thing could have been a hard spot on the material could have been a faulty tool operator might have installed it but a lot of times you know you just with if it's that one cycle thing you, you, you note it you watch it but it's the quick troubleshooting, which gets you to the next cycle. Of course, if it happens a second time, a third time, chronically makes me miss a goal. I got to go into a deeper, you know, the the five wise instead of the three wise, but you do an awful lot of troubleshooting around standardized work and things like Mm -hmm. that, you know, with what I call good, good troubleshooting
0: skills. Yeah. Well, I think of, you know, supporting team members or, you know, parallel in healthcare, uh, would be nurses and other frontline staff. Um, you know, if a tool breaks we re- replacing that tool is certainly better than asking the employee to just do their best and fight through the problem. Yeah. with a yeah. Half functioning tool. And, and, you know, sadly in healthcare, I see a lot of situations where I'm trying to think what a good parallel would be, um, where, where, where people are asked to just, uh, keep fighting through and management's not giving them the equivalent of a, uh, a quick swap out to a tool that's working. Well,
1: or, or you're not getting support fast. I mean, the, the normal thing is people tell me, Oh, we're, we're already good firefighters. We're great troubleshooters. And I, I take that up as an opportunity to study them. And you find out that their troubleshooting routines instead of taking minutes, take 15 minutes or 30 minutes before they're mm-hmm. satisfactory resolved and they often reoccur. So they're just they aren't good troubleshooters or problem solvers again compared to what i'm I'm comparing them to in toyota and you know there's there's good troubleshooting and of course there's bad troubleshooting just like there's good a3s or good problem solving and bad problem solving and i in this book i hope that people start to distinguish a little better on this this good spirit of, of quick troubleshooting and not firefighting getting to a cause that that enables us to you know win the shift win the hour uh and then look you know, like Duran said, vital few versus trivial many. I'll pick some for deeper divers, deep dives, but not everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, this, this it sounds really, really simple, but I'll throw a couple examples at you that were, look, it's, I consider it troubleshooting, but it's still the state of, you know, uh, of science where we're at today. Um, I had uh, an attack of diverticulitis. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: Today I was supposed to fly to Brazil for the, the, their 20th Lean Summit, and I was a keynote speaker the, uh, two days later. And I woke up in horrible pain. Mm. I, knew, I knew more or less what was wrong, but was kind of hoping it was something else. And by uh, 8 a.m., I, I took myself to ER, because the pain was so bad. Uh, it's the, probably the fourth time in my life in the last 10 years I've had it. And they, they check you out with all the you know, procedures they need to, to to be safe and make sure it's not something else. But all I need is the, the, the shot for the pain, and then they give me uh, some form of antibiotic. An, an antibiotic. And I ask them, oh, what's the root cause? And they say, well, you know, case by case, we don't know. We're not going to cut you open and find out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's cost prohibitive, but we can treat it, you know, and that's the right thing to do for most situations. If it occurs 10 times like it did in my father, by the way, it's probably hereditary in my case. Yeah. Uh, we may have a surgery and cut some of your, uh, you know, intestine out and, and then really, you know, prevent it from ever recurring. But, you know, with diet and a lot of other things, we can generally keep it under control. Also for you, we're just going to give you the shot and the uh, treat it with um, antibiotics. So is that good troubleshooting or is that deep dive problem solving?
0: (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, my my most recent ER visit was either a case of food poisoning or a really bad stomach flu. And Uh, I got a similar story of like, well... We don't know and we can't know what it really is, but we would treat it the same way. So we're yeah. treating the symptoms, uh, the IV got my fever and heart rate down. And you know, like, well, yeah. Uh, so things
1: escalate, we'll treat it this way first. And if that fails, then we'll kick it up a notch. Yeah. And that's what often does happen in Toyota as well, a broken tool, we'll treat it as a one-time event, keep, collect the data, record it, keep the broken tool. But if it's just a one-time event, it doesn't happen, you know, for several days or thousands of cycles in a row. It's probably, you know, something you you, you ride off as one of those small events. But you're, mm-hmm. you you got too many other things to go on, go after. It's it's a tr- one of the trivial many, unfortunately. It's not one of the vital few in certain
0: circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, you know, we have these recurring problems. This is where I think you know we start getting into what you call the type two problem of, of gaps from standard but you know I was wondering maybe as you transition into that can you also talk about the idea of a, a term that was used much more often in the auto industry uh, this idea of containment whether there's there's a problem that's been discovered um, you know containment as a strategy to protect the customer even if we haven't yet solved the root you know founders or, or, you know solved the root cause of an issue can you talk about how that yeah. fits into maybe good troubleshooting
1: yeah, so even with troubleshooting, there, there often does need to be containment. Um, you know, there's a, I call it the four C's of type one. And again, type one problem solving is not the ideal. I'm not defending it as the the holy grail or the only thing you're ever gonna do. It's just it's just one of the, the first angle or first quadrant you need to think through as a leader and if we're, we're good enough in that aspect or not. And even in the, in the what I call the four C's of troubleshooting, we go through what's the, uh, what's the uh, concern okay, or a problem, what's the problem or concern? Second, what's the cause of that? And there's nothing that stops you from going five Y's deep, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Third, corrective actions, countermeasures, corrective actions, whichever language you use, and fourth, then you check results in the next cycle very rapidly to see if it's improved or not once you've implemented your your action items. Now, in that spirit of corrective actions, you got to often contain material, especially quality problems. You got to contain it just in case that there's multiple in, in the pool of things that have gotten downstream from you. And of course, if you have a perfectly robust system and built in quality and this can't happen, that's wonderful. But often people do rely upon sampling inspections or there's imperfect control plans and you could have a hundred or a thousand things, you know, potentially that got through that need to be contained and looked at to be safe. So you protect the customer. Yeah. So even in type one, there's, there's, you know, as, as part of the corrective action items rapidly, there needs to be often some type of containment on quality problems. Yeah. And of and, course,
0: no, sorry. Okay. No, well, I was going to say sometimes the containment, even though it's not an ideal long-term solution, there, there are some circumstances where you might quote unquote, throw people at the problem because you don't have a better, Yeah, that's a necessary part of containment. Sometimes. Yeah.
1: Well, th- think of an Ebola virus outbreak happens. Do you? are we root cause problem solving it or step one do you contain it you know you try and infectious diseases. I think a perfect example of where you, you have to contain <laughs> yeah yeah and there's nothing trivial about that uh, yeah. it can be quite difficult and quite important that can be what saves lives uh, contain the fire you know in firefighters I use the analogy of type 1 I put the house is on fire I put it out I don't hold a meeting get out my clipboards Start trying to build a fishbone. <laughs> or ask what the scientific method is. I put we contain the fire for safety reasons. So there's sometimes a sequence. Sometimes you can go straight into type two. I I I get it. I understand it. But sometimes there is this necessity to do type one because of the sheer volume, or because it's a problem that segments type one to type two. And yeah. you know, fires and disease con- containment or product containment is, is often that that two step where I'm. Troubleshooting, containing it, and buying the time to get into uh, deeper root cause analysis.
0: Yeah, well, it's funny you use that firefighting example, or literally fighting fires. I think I, I think I emailed you. There was a cartoon that I posted on the blog. I'll, I'll share a link in the notes. Where uh, there's, you know firefighters, there's a house burning, and one of the firefighters says, "Wait, don't jump to solutions." He's holding an A3, and oh no, send me that. I got, uh, I got it. Exactly. I thought I. I thought I sent it to you
1: because I may, I might've missed it, but please resend. But yeah, exactly. uh No, no, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That the right thing is to do is to put out the fire and contain it. Then you go in and see what caused the fire. In this case, it's a natural two step from one to two. Was it wiring? You know, was it something else that, uh, cooking that caused the fire, was it an arson? You know, that's when the investigator can go in and start getting the facts, you know, going to the Gemba, getting the facts, collecting the data, and seeing what really occurred in a robust type two sense.
0: Yeah, and that's where we can learn to try to help prevent future fires instead of getting better at fighting the fire, right?
1: Yeah, and that's why there has to be a type two. I get type one is just a, a situational technique sometimes often required but you know type two is where 20th century problem solving really did grow up and focus around because we don't want to firefight it we want to prevent it from ever recurring again learn from the lessons of of, uh, the troubleshooting and the failures and say now what was the root cause of that and systemically put in fixes countermeasures that fix it so that it won't reoccur again that is real type two problem solving whether you use six sigma Damaic routines and statistical analysis, or you use observation and logic-based routines and the five whys, you critically think it, you measure it, and you critically think it down to the point where, ah, this cause and effect relationship is now understood well enough that I can prevent it from happening again. Yeah. And that's, that's the hallmark of a really good, you know, type two style problem, yeah. whatever, so no matter whatever steps and methodologies you use.
0: Yeah, so what, what, what is the kind of typical timing it probably depends on the situation, but moving to from troubleshooting to root cause analysis and prevention. So maybe thinking of that situation where a team member is repeatedly dropping bolts. Like at some point they're trying to get through the minute, get through the hour they have production to make. Like at what point would a, a team leader or a group leader decide, okay, wait a minute, this, this constant bolt dropping is just slowing us down too much. We've got to, it's better to just go ahead and stop and try to solve it before moving forward. Or,
1: yeah, that's where again it's it's a, a, a trigger or threshold needs to be thought through and established. And there's there's multiple ways to think about this um, situation. My situation, I think it is different. One is severity. It, it can be a one-time occurrence. You know, bolt dropping maybe it has to happen a hundred times and cause me to miss my my standardized work routine to the point where it affects my end-of-day production total. Uh, but even one instance is a near miss a safety near mess mm-hmm. for a huge quality problem. One time requires a deep dive. So yeah, there's always what I call the severe cases, even if it's one time can trigger the need for the deep dive uh, type two or, or re- repeat. And the repeat then either needs to be frustrating enough, like the drop bolts where it's causing you at the end of the day to miss your hourly and shift totals or, or whatever the metric is we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, Or it's missing. It's, it's, you you can now point at a KPI tree of some type. Your board, whatever you've got for my area, you're managing and saying that, yeah, it's in my top three, my top five for the month, my week or my month, whatever I'm measuring and looking at my KPIs at that productivity is off on, in this, in this room, in this station, in this area. And the data is telling me the top three are this. Well, those, those, those are the vital few versus the trivial many. When it, when it, Climbs to the top of the vital few, that the top of the Pareto chart. Then it's got to be addressed in in good Type Two thinking, problem solving yeah. thinking.
0: Yeah. So you I know, mean, Type Two is uh, a gap from standard. Or I've heard um, Tracy and Ernie Richardson and and others from Toyota talking about um, a caused gap where something is not measuring up to the standard. And then there's a the flip side. I think this is where we get into your Type Three of uh, reaching toward a target condition, where I've, I've heard sometimes people call this a created gap, where yes. you're intentionally raising the bar and not just trying to meet standard, but do better. Can can you talk about the, the, the gray area or the transition from type two to type three and how that's important?
1: Yeah, again, we've always had this distinction in Toyota since the time I worked there, that the cause versus created, and this is the, the type two versus type three. But type twos, are, again, the language we invoke is, is gap from standard or expected outcome. And it's it's the trend line and it's just admitting with facts that hey, we're not making it. We're, we're at 96% or 84% or whatever versus where we're supposed to be. There's a gap. I, I figure out what's causing the gap and sometimes it's a parade of multiple things and we tee those up for problems to be solved, known problems to be solved that'll get me back to standard. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. If you can do type one and type two very well, you're gonna be a successful organization and make your annual plan. And that's, you know, a lot of organizations struggle with just making whatever they commit to in their annual plan. Services, healthcare, industry, scientific, national laboratories, doesn't matter. I'm not trivializing this at all. Doing type one and type two well is, is pretty hard. But let's say you, you get there. You're good at type one and type two. And uh, you know, you're, you're what I call green. You know, we've got all these metrics and we're green. Well, guess what? The competition's not standing still, customer expectations aren't static, and you wanna embed your environment, your organization with the spirit of challenge and human development. So we're always gonna raise the standard some way, somehow, whether it's externally driven or earn- internally driven. We're gonna raise the standards, say we're gonna be 3% better next year, 5% better. You know, whether it's cost, quality, delivery, safety, it, you know, you, you, your, your gaps are respective to your industry and situation, competitive pressures you're facing, and you create you create problems in that sense. Where there was not a problem before, we raise the standard and say, well, we're going to do it, you know, just like the Olympics. The pole vault 20 feet last year, we're going to pole vault 20 feet, two inches, and try and be, you know, that level this year. We raised the bar two inches. I, I now got a problem because I can't clear 20 feet and two inches. How am I going to do that? Yeah, I mean, increase my speed, increase my strength, increase my technique. You know, you got to think about that. Is a new fiberglass in the in the bar? What is it? Um, there's a lot of ways to think about how to perform better. By and large, using existing methods, and this is where the Japanese, you know, kind of use the kaizen word, invoking creativity before capital, mm-hmm. and coming up with better solutions using the the resources we have now. And that's the spirit of Type Three. That whether you have a problem or not. We can go to the area if it's stable enough and say we're going to raise the bar and challenge the team and the thought process to do it better than it's been done in the past.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, you say in the book, you know, it's important to get better at type one and type two problem solving before starting to learn type three. And I I think you include the A3 methodology as as part of type three. Could could you elaborate on, on that thought?
1: Yeah. So again, part of the reflection John and I were having is that a a phenomenon we see is the organization, which does not sustain its results. Uh, Sometimes to like your book, they're not measuring the right thing or managing the right things in the right way. And sometimes they have what I call this, this grab bag of approach of our our style of lean is to hold a Kaizen event per month or per quarter, whatever interval. And in that they try and tackle everything in the whole kitchen sink. It's like Everything they can think of they go after and try and get their arms around and cover. and they're not only doing a, a target state, but they're they're trying to solve every problem in the current state and some of the firefighting stuff. And I joke it's like throwing you know the spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. and inevitably some of it does not stick. You get the regression to the mean uh, and frustration and sometimes cynicism and you know things morale can go down if it doesn't work and say, oh, it doesn't work, it can't be done here, or it's been tried before. You know, there's, there's a negative side when that um, pattern of, uh, of implementation occurs and doesn't go well. So one of the things we wanted to do is say, well, think about your problems and routines, whether it's type one, type two, type three, and what you're going after, because the, the truth is the, the target three, target state, Value stream mapping and things we're talking about occurred in Toyota mostly from the 70s forward. You can find examples of it earlier, because again, it's not linear, it's not one by one. But the 50s and 60s were Toyota's heyday of, of type one, type two problem solving. And and drawing this, uh, the value stream maps out to the supplier didn't really get rocking and rolling until the 70s and 80s and beyond. So if you think about it as a pyramid, and again, it's, it's not always this case, but there's, there's often logic behind behind having a solid type one system and I call it winning the, day, winning the hour, winning the day. Then a type two system of, of winning the week, winning the month, and problem solving effectively. And then with that base, steady base, trying to create a target state on top of that which is better and is more robust and less, la- less likely to backslide. Yeah. Now, whether that pyramid analogy is, is right for every situation, I can't say, you know, it depends. It's where this, this always depends. But it, there are, sadly, you know, John, I've seen it. I've seen it. You've seen it. Too many instances of what I call the grab bag approach, throwing every technique into an event, calling it Kaizen, target state, future state, hoping it sticks, and, and most of it doesn't.
0: Mm. Um, what, one other question I had, um, you know, in the book you talk about root cause analysis and, and problem solving in, in the type two realm, and, and you um, use a, a, a seven step problem solving model, um, which I, I, in, I've seen others articulate this. Is this similar to what's sometimes called Toyota business practices or that kind of structured problem solving, or it's part of it? Yeah,
1: I, I went with what I call the, the, the generic abstract seven steps, which are, which are nobodies, they're not AD. They're not Toyota's current eight-step method. Uh, it's not the five steps of Six Sigma demaic I went with this neutral, bland, vanilla approach that I think you can branch off of. Because again, if I write what Toyota's approach is today, it's gonna move. It was six <laughs> steps in the 60s, seven steps the, when I worked there. It's eight steps today. And the eight steps will probably change slightly in terms of definition 10 years from now or uh, who knows. Um, so I didn't just want to mimic whatever Toyota's fashion of fad of the moment is, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but the truth is, I mean, different techniques have evolved for different historical reasons. And I think the the bigger issue that we struggle with is the root cause analysis part of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this one size fits all. And I, I, I put it into three. I could put it into three or four styles of root cause analysis. The first being the what I call the logic family which is any type of fault tree, five-wire fishbone, we're actually drawing lines, putting words against those lines, and it's some type of a logical breakdown. It's a logical analytical breakdown into cause and effect relationships. And there's been three or four inventions of this, whether it's 5 Y, fishbone, fault tree, you know, several, several other derivatives also exist. But they're all effective. I put them in the logic, logic family, word logic family, critical thinking family. Uh, the second is, is I call that one variable at a time, or OVAT, where certain problems in Toyota have to be solved statistically. Population doesn't like it. Large people do not have the background or training for it, but in an engine plant where I came from, tolerances of shafts are measured in microns.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Human hair is 30 microns. and uh, I'm dealing with a tolerance band that's 130th, you know, of the human hair our senses are the senses of the human being are not good enough to discern good or bad let alone capable incapable or sources of variation you have to statistically measure and sort out cause and effect relationships using statistics you know even if it's a we call it a process capability study and, and one thing at a time yeah. And i really don't think the outside world appreciate it's how big this was in toyota thrust in the 60s and 70s and 80s and how good they are at capability, process, control, and what what Americans would call Six Sigma, Toyota's been working on in their style, and their spirit, under their Judoka pillar for decades. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the third family, again, is the more complicated multiple variable at a time, where it's not one thing at a time. It's the interplay, the complex interplay between multiple variables at a time. And you need even more specialized training to be able to sort out that sort of thing. Yeah. So... You know, there's different flavors of analysis depending upon the situation and problem you're facing. And I could I could create more and people people can and do. But I want them to at least understand that even in a root cause analysis, there's not one way of thinking about it. There's not one tool or technique. There's multiple.
0: And you, you know, you talk about uh, that problem solving model. You talk about um, A3s. I mean, to you, is, is A3 just kind of a slightly different different specialized form of that because a lot of the problem-solving mindset is, is so similar it, or what, what are the key differences
1: so what happened best i can tell and i interviewed people who lived there in the 1960s japanese who were there in the 1960s back 62 toyota kicked off a 63 at tqm program i think it got mm-hmm. started in 62 and the first full full year of it was 1963 and as part of that TQM program, you know, the, the, the problem-solving efforts really ratcheted up a notch. So you started having QC storyboards and problems being solved in a step-by-step fashion. And at the same time, they were doing the whole sheen Connery, the rollout of top to bottom, that this, this vehicle family needs to get lighter, cheaper, better, faster, more robust. This department needs to improve its capabilities. So you started getting the top-down things. And those collided into what were very often uh, flip chart paper sized things on the wall, step by step, visual depictions and studying and and storyboarding techniques. And you can't leave that stuff on the wall. There was no digital recording images back then. You couldn't put it on a a Xerox machine and copy it. They were too large. So what happened is people started rewriting those forms of report onto 11 by 17 pieces of paper, uh, PDCA fashion. And you had a couple flavors being written, the, the, the step-by-step problems, specific problems that were assigned down to individuals to go and resolve because it was a top-hitting KPI. And you had the, the cascade initiatives coming down as well that were raising the bar on you in some areas. You know, Setup time reduction was a famous one where it kept getting better and better or quality requirements to export to America. Horsepower and fuel efficiency and economy had to get better and better and better and people were trying to improve, things cascaded down top to bottom. And for whatever reason, you know, the A3 became the, the currency, if you will, or, or way of depicting those problems, at least the, the, the high-level story of those problems and the details uh, you know, in backup fashion as needed, to the audience and to give quick updates. You know, five, the five, ten-minute update instead of well, there was no PowerPoints, but you didn't get a hundred PowerPoint slides. You had your A3 and a couple supporting documents to give your scheduled update on this topic. And it wasn't one nice neat story of how this occurred. It was trial and error, and people had their yep. favorite ways. But you know, eleven by seventeen is just a blank canvas. Yeah, I can write it. Well,
0: a- well, when I was at the uh, Toyota plant in San Antonio recently, yeah, you know, I was struck by what some people would call a lack of standard or an inconsistency, which to me, I thought, okay, well, this is sort of trivial. The format of problem solving work that was, you could see posted in different areas. So there were some like, you know, large grease boards, whiteboards that looked like essentially a team was working on an A3 on a whiteboard.
1: Yes. Like you
0: could, uh, you could see the elements of, you know the blocks of of it and the the labels. I'm like, well, that looks like a giant A3. Well, it's it's a quote unquote A3 problem solving, even though it wasn't on A3 paper. As I think you were saying, I yeah. if you were saying earlier or during our pre chat that um, the the rigid format of the blocks of the A3 or details like that. That's not the important thing. It's more about the the thought process.
1: Yeah, the critical thinking within the box, no matter what you call it. You know, whether you call it current state definition or problem definition kind of kind of depends. Am I depicting the current state in order to learn what the problem is? Or do I already know what the problem is? Or do I have a step two, which is breaking down the problem? You, you'll see multiple flavors, you know, even in today in the real work, not the theory, not the textbook they're going to hand you at the door or the uh, the PowerPoint you've, that you've somebody found online or found from their favorite sensei. But if you go in and actually analyze the real world of what's occurring in Toyota, you're gonna to see multiple flavors. And that could be today, because it's electronically exchanged between plants, You know, seven or eight PowerPoint slides, each with a step on it. It could be still a handwritten A3, or it could be the, the whiteboard big grease board where a team has gotten together in several meetings and worked through the steps to get assignments and you know, clarify the problem, break it down. What really is the problem? What's the goal? begin our causal analysis investigation and and corrective actions and check results. And what's really important is that you understand the critical thinking and what I call the key points of each step and whether those are being met or not. It's it's like, I I don't care what the name of your golf club is or the brand of your golf club is at the end of the day, I care. Did you hit it in the fairway? Did you put it on the green? Did you put it in the cup and make the birdie? You know, we got it. We got it evaluate really by did it obtain the result and of course yes do I have a process which, which can be followed and sustained in is best practice but I, I don't play golf and on the scorecard I don't write uh Titleist seven iron Nike five iron you know swing thought of smooth and easy you don't you don't write that in the box you write what you score <laughs> and hopefully it's lower than standard
0: <laughs> yeah
1: and if it's not, then of course, the best practice is why? What is the gap yeah. standard and why? Because a, a, the root cause of a snapped hook
0: shot out of bounds is different from four out of the sand trap, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you don't keep an A3 active in your golf bag when you're out there? <laughs> no,
1: again, during the game, you, did, you don't. That's troubleshooting, right? Now, <laughs> I may week to week track statistics. There are statistics for golf. You can create KPIs. Sure. And you can then have a type two problem, you know, of, uh, improving your gaps or a type three, if you're a scratch golfer and, and, and try and improve a certain area. But no, again, you're right. During the day, you don't ride an A3 in, in golf.
0: Yeah. You, you could even, in, 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 the book, you mentioned, uh, SPC charts or control charts. You, you could even put your, uh, your golf scores into a control chart to see if it's worth overreacting to, Oh, I shot two strokes worse than last week. Well, that, that might be yeah. just normal variation, right?
1: Yeah, it has normal variation, yeah. Get, get a good night's sleep, you know, try again the next day and see what the score is. Now, you know, 20, 20 strokes better, we got a special cause, you know. <laughs> something, something really bad happened. Uh,
0: yeah. Um, now, I want to touch on uh, the fourth type of problem solving, what you call open-ended problem solving, which, which seems like it starts getting more into the realm of... Um, innovation or value creation instead of waste reduction uh, in different ways. So I was wondering you know, if you could kind of introduce where where those boundaries are and why you included that in the book, things more along the lines of lean startup that you reference.
1: Yeah, well, in the big picture, you know, type four is, is the home run or the grand slam that, that's the most important. Say, so you, you wanna be a company that lasts for 100 years, for example, well, those are the companies that have tremendous power to innovate, come up with new products, enter new areas and sustain growth, provide value to the customer in a way that enables you to sustain and grow. And I forget what the statistics are, but the average company in the S&P 500 today, I forget the life is 25 years, 15 years or something, but it's incredibly short. Now, some of those are being acquired, but some are going out of business. And the lifeblood of a company truly is the long-term ability to innovate, problem solve on the bigger cycle and figure out you know solutions that uh, surprise and delight the customer, and enable you to, to grow profitably and provide value to you know your your customers. And that's that's innovation. And executives are always interested in it. Americans are always interested in this topic. The sexy buzzword. Oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 like it's a big consulting industry. And again, I it's I'm not ignoring. Pretending it's not. Potentially the most important. If you talk dollars and cents, say Toyota's decision to do the Lexus family, which was you know an innovative for them, new new sales line, new new finance line, new product family, new quality standards, new experience standards, new new everything. Um, that's 80% of their profits. Last time I heard, I don't have the current number, but you know it's it's really staggering how successful it was for their corporate portfolio of offerings its reputation and it's a uh, you know bottom line profitability today so you know companies need that 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 type four whatever you call it innovation blue blue ocean strategic thinking there's a plethora of things that can come under here about how to you know win tomorrow but it's very different from problem solving you know matthew may is a, a noted mm-hmm. you know thinker and even coach to toyota in this area and um it's open-ended you can't define the problem too early in this thinking world because you're you're making something new something unknown the target state is fuzzy at best and often very unclear so you know they use different language like empathy for example and uh, you know experiencing things and experimenting and coming up with multiple prototypes and customer feedback and things like that so you intentionally trying new things that have not yet been done and get the reaction. And it's yeah, okay. Okay. We can call it scientific thinking or problem solving, but the thinking patterns are different. It's much more creative. It's much more creative than, than critical thinking and root cause analysis of a known problem and known process. And uh, it's, it's in and of itself, it's, it's worthy of its own category. Yeah. So we just wanted to emphasize how important it is in the book. And I call it the fourth leg of the table. Mm-hmm. And yes, a table will balance with three legs, but it's stronger with four. Um, We've and all it, it seen you know,
0: mean... occasionally a dog running with three legs and you yeah. say that's bad, but it's also amazing that the dog adapts. But yeah, a dog runs better with four legs too.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so uh, would, would, would you say also that, um, you know, in, in the book, I know you said type one and type two create a really good t- foundation for type three would you argue likewise that types one through three create a really good foundation for innovation that companies that are pro- better at problem solving can then shift that thinking into into innovation more effectively
1: yeah whether it's juggling four balls or legs of a table uh-huh. that, that being good at one two and three will only help you in the fourth realm now i agree with matthew may that being good at one two and three alone don't guarantee success in uh-huh. type four and he's openly critical of American and worldwide efforts in innovation. He says, big picture, we still suck at this topic. More, more uh, misses than hits. And there's a lot of art. I know you can call it science if you want, but there's a lot of art and in innovation too. And uh, that, that process, the canvas they use, um, it, it relates to types one, two, and three. Everything in one, two, and three can enable an organization to be better at type four, but in and of itself doesn't guarantee success in type four. Yeah. So they're complementary, but they don't, I call them necessary ingredients, but you know, in and of themselves, one, two, and three are not sufficient to guarantee success to number
0: four. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and before we wrap up here, um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, I'm, I'm told that you practice martial arts and that that's something that's been very, uh, important to you. And I was wondering if you had any reflections on how that personal practice influences your thinking or philosophy about TPS, problem solving, improvement.
1: Yeah. um, So I've done a, a multitude over the years from these like Filipino martial arts that very few people know about called Kali, which, you know, and things you do with knives and sticks and empty hands to the, more down and dirty on the mat, you know, jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's, it's Japanese origin, but, you know, jiu-jitsu uh, kind of perfected by the Brazilians and exported to the world by Brazil. It's kind of funny. Something Japanese invented it, but the, the Brazilians, uh, you know, perfected it and exported it. It's one of those rare cases. It's
0: so, the other direction usually.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I do it to stay in shape, and it's part of personal discipline and motivation. But it very, it's very analogous to the four types, for example, because, you come in and you do your routine, you warm up together, you do your drills and this, this live sparring. There's, there's no empty, there's no kata in jujitsu. Everything's person on person. We don't, we don't wrestle with ourselves. That's, that's silly in jujitsu. You know, mm. <laughs> karate makes fun of jujitsu. Jitsu makes fun of karate guys. Okay. <laughs> <It's just laughs> we don't, we don't, we don't shadow box and do uh, these funny, uh, kata dances we actually we grapple with each other but you know in the five minutes at the end of the day you wrap up by actually doing five minute rounds and you rotate the last 30 minutes you do five five minutes rounds one minute break in between and in that five minutes you are you are problem-solving there are positions and there are forces at work and the black belts it's like chess they're, they're five steps ahead okay and as a beginner at the bottom, you're getting squashed because you don't, you're playing checkers and they're playing chess. They're setting you up. You're going to get choked or submitted, but the good partners, you know, let you figure your way out of the jam. They stop you in a bad position. And they say, okay, how do you get out of this? What problem are you solving? They hold you down, you're stuck. And they teach you to critically think quickly under pressure, troubleshoot. And you say, okay, the only way out of side control is me to frame and get my knee back in here. Okay, good. You just troubleshooted your way out of a jam. The real mistake, why were you in that position, was made three steps ago. (laughs) And you go home after the five minutes, or you talk to the person afterwards, and you start realizing, okay, the root cause, the mistake I made was letting him get out of my guard, passing my guard. And you discover that through videotape, through self-reflection, through analysis over time find out what the real problems are in your game the holes are in your game but you can't do that in the moment you're getting getting choked out by a black belt you got three seconds buddy (laughs) you're gonna tap some fast troubleshooting required that's troubleshooting no science nope i don't have time to do the laminated cards on the kata i don't have time to collect my 30 part sample for six sigma i can't ride an a3 and i got i got three seconds to troubleshoot my way out of this position which is temporary but might buy me enough time to recover guard and, and, you know, get to the next gate, next, next level, next stage. And that's type one and type two. We, we call jujitsu problem solving. Everybody who does it calls it problem solving. And there's that quick thinking and the more deliberate style. And you go home and there is type three, type four, or you, you invent new moves or different guards or different flavors or styles. You find the the flavor of the family of, of style you want to play, depending upon your, your body type, strength, age, flexibility. So there's, there's type three and, you know, kind of, type 4ish attributes to it as well.
0: Cool. That, that's that's something I've never never gotten into. The closest I've gotten to a belt is a 6 sigma green belt training class and I'm not yeah, even sort certi- I'm not even certified as a belt. So
1: <laughs> yeah, Americans love the Japanese names and and the belts. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. If you put a Japanese name on it, call it a martial art and apply belts to it, it's, for some reason it's guaranteed the you get success or attention, you know, it's,
0: uh... Thank you for, thank you for your Hansai. I, I mean, I should just say reflections and, um, for yoke, I mean, for, for spreading ideas, um, about yeah, yeah. Kai's, I mean, continuous improvement and yeah. problem solving. It's, it's easy to, yeah, it's easy to overdo it. I try to limit the handful of Japanese words. I'm, I'm you're, you're fair, you're, you're fluent still in Japanese
1: yeah, I, I keep up on. I'm not fluent like I was, but I still read books and I, uh, you know, I talk to friends in Japanese. My my kids go to Japanese school on Saturdays, so I talk to the kids and the teachers in Japanese. So I, I stay functional, but I don't consider myself fluent anymore. It's, it's yeah, too many years ago. So times yeah. times flying by.
0: But um, Art, thank you so much for you know uh, for your time today and for sharing some really interesting reflections on your work and career at Toyota and otherwise, uh, for talking about four types of problems and, and even sharing uh, a little bit here about uh, martial arts. Um, I wanna tell people about your website, uh, artoflean.com. Um, where, where can people learn more uh, about your books or, or possibly connect with you online other than the website?
1: Oh, the website, you know, I'm on the usual places like LinkedIn. I'm not an active participant there, but uh, from time to time I do posts at LEI. Um, articles I write and put on my website. I'm, I'm due to, I need to do several more. Uh, artoflean.com is probably the easiest place to go.
0: Okay. Well, hope people will go check that out. Uh, the book is uh, published by the Lean Enterprise Institute. It's available there. Uh, I believe it's also uh, available on Amazon. So I hope people, We'll check that out. Uh, again, Art Smalley, thank you. It was a real pleasure to uh, finally have you on the podcast. I'm glad the book gave us a good uh, opportunity to do that. Thanks again for being here today.
1: No, oh, thank you, Mark. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.